welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Novik Roundtable. I am your host for today, Devin Becker. I uh, actually am a Novik writer and consultant. And then you may see some familiar faces here joining me. I've got... Uh, Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik, who you may have heard many, many times on many of the podcasts here. David Kay joining us as well, president of Snapshot Games and an angel investor. And then Maria Gillis, our usual host, uh, switching over to a guest role here as senior project or product manager at Hutch. Hello, everybody. Heart. Maria, Hello. how does it feel to be on the other side of the glass here? This is great. I've never had an intro. It's been about almost a year since I've had an intro. So this is quite nice. I like this cozy feeling. Awesome. Um, yeah, well, to give you a bit of context, uh, I might be moving off from being a host because I need to get some personal time back, but hopefully staying on and doing some of these as a participant. That was a good answer. Um, I'm too opinionated to be a host. I think that's what we're going with. <laughs> yeah, now you get to, to expound a bit more on things. <laughs> yeah, so lots of chaos today. New host, new host as panelists. Then, of course, David, this is your second time on, but excited, excited to see where this episode goes. I know we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Yeah, we definitely have quite a few updates as well as some deep dive discussions. We've got some stuff on some Xbox updates, including their cloud gaming stuff, uh, some Stadia cloud news around their uh, discontinuing their services, uh, COD Mobile possibly sunsetting, and some stuff around uh, a topic you've probably already heard quite a bit about, SVB or Silicon Valley Bank collapsing, uh, some stuff about app loving. So if you want to get us a crack off here, Aaron, on Xbox. Sure, so I have two short Xbox updates. Um, the first... Uh, nice and short. Starfield was delayed again. Um, and this time from the first half of 2023 to now September 6th, I believe. Uh, now, I'm sure the game, which is going to be massive and very complex, is being delayed for good quality-driven reasons. They don't want to have a Cyberpunk 2077 moment on their hands. Um, so I'm not going to overthink that. But I, I mention it just because it's a continuation of the pattern of Xbox lacking and delaying exclusive AAA games that is causing Xbox to continue losing market share in this console generation. And that's something we've talked about many times in the past, so we don't need to beat a dead horse here. But uh, hopefully we're nearing a turning point for Xbox's AAA game output, but getting like these big projects right and um, making sure that Starfield is, is a hit and, you know, as a driver to bring people to Game Pass and to keep people there, at least for a while. Um, um, that's going to be important for them to figure out. And, of course, the biggest change to that would affect Xbox's AAA gaming output is the acquisition of Activision Blizzard, which is still in the hands of regulators, which brings me to, to part two of this update, which is that in response to European regulators being fixated on cloud gaming as a source of monopolistic concern, which... As we talked about, maybe it was a week or two ago, is a bit silly because it's not actually that important of like a component of the games industry right now and probably won't be as a standalone entity in its current form, at least for a very long time. But either ways, that's that's how 
regulators see it. And in response to that, Xbox just announced two new, you could call them absolutely game-changing deals uh, that no one saw coming, which is that um, they're striking 10-year agreements to bring Xbox PC games to both Boosteroid and Ubitus, two cloud gaming companies. I'm sure we all have, we all Such know a bunch sass, about Aaron. and we all have heard of. Um, Finally, but, um, I can play. <laughs> I was very excited to hear. I've been waiting for an announcement about when are they going to bring Game Pass to Boosteroid. That's really been very top of mind for me, and I'm, uh, and I'm sure it was also you know a very high priority um, uh, project for the Xbox business development team. So I'm really glad that we finally have seen uh, Game Pass come to Boosteroid. That's probably yeah. the thing that's going to get them over the hump for sure. Yeah, it's yep. true innovation. Although, David, I, I did make you out to be more of an Ubitus kind of guy. So I'm, I'm a bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I go back and forth. Originally, I was, I was much more of an Ubitus guy. But I think, you know, if you just anyone who's been paying attention really knows that it's really all about Boosteroid these days. And so I'm a real Boosteroid stan now. I really, need a sar- I really need a sarcasm alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but anyways, in case in case the sarcasm was not clear enough, this is really just a regulatory dance that Xbox is playing and just saying, hey, we have these games, but we support all of these different platforms and services out there. Like we're not trying to look. Look to how anti competitive. Look look how com- how anti anti competitive we can be. Yes, we love we, we heart competition. Um, yeah. could be the the t shirts that the Xbox execs can where at the next hearing um so anyways those are the uh, the couple quick xbox announcements none of them are too huge of a deal but it's just interesting to see see both the ongoing struggle with AAA games and just the dance they continue to have on the the regulatory frauds and again that saga will probably come to an end relatively soon so hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be able to stop talking about things from like a speculative angle and actually talk about things from a, Hey, this is what's actually going to happen angle. So fingers crossed, we'll get resolutions there soon enough. And and David, you had some stuff on Stadia that seems kind of relevant given the cloud gaming here. Well, I think just a, a, a quick note, um, you know, Google announced this week, this week, last week, they announced recently anyway, uh, the shutdown of, so if you recall when, Google shut down the consumer version of Stadia, the actual consumer service. They announced a uh, a pivot to a B2B strategy under the moniker, I think it was Immersive Stream. And um, I was not shocked to hear that that has also been shut down now for a couple of reasons. One, um, it was quite hard to see who this was for and what strategic role it would play for developers and publishers. And I think this was probably also um, not helped by the fact that their their go-to-market for immersive stream, as far as I could tell, was to, well, let me back up. They had a bunch of uh, publishing agreements, essentially, where they had, had a, uh, essentially had paid a bunch of developers to bring their content to Stadia. And uh, I think it's what was interesting was they, after they announced the shutdown, they terminated all those agreements, um, including leaving some some payments to developers uh, out, outstanding. And this was the exact same base of people that they went to to try and convince them that they should become customers of uh, Immersive Stream. 
which doesn't seem like I made it didn't really make a ton of sense to me. So I, I was not shocked for uh, to see this to, to see this outcome. Well, you know, as a as a former Stadia fan myself, I'm sad to see it go, but it makes sense that uh, at this point, you know, it's, it's just done for. Uh, but, but Devin, uh, yeah, are you also a Destiny fan? You know that that was actually the only way I'd play Destiny too. So it was actually yeah. it's one of those things where it's like now I'm like I'm left in the lurch uh, on quite a few games. Like I got my refund, right? Like they were good on the on the word on at least to customers on the refunds. It sounds like maybe studios were a little bit on the on the the bad side of that. But at the same time, like it's I now I now I have to consider rebuying these games, right? And so mm-hmm. it's as a big cloud person myself, now I'm forced to wait for Starfield, I guess. On uh, on Xbox and I I guess also Diablo Four will not be part of that cloud stuff on launch, so it's going to yeah, be it's a, being, it's an interesting year. It's not being part of the Game Pass, I believe it yeah. was announced. Well, speaking of uh, of Microsoft and uh, and shutting things down, I uh, got some potential news around uh, Call of Duty Mobile. Yeah, I hope to bring good news. Maybe it is good news. We'll see. So uh, we spoke about the new Call of Duty mobile game Warzone when we were talking about Apex Legends mobile being shut down. And they announced that it's going to be a cross-platform experience. And I think that makes a lot of sense. They're realigning the the franchise with the now the modern expectations of players of being able to play wherever they want, however they want. And I was looking more into the what's going to be cross-platform as things like shared progression, which includes the battle pass. That sounds pretty cool. But also your weapons and your cosmetics, a common friends list, cross-platform matchmaking. So it's really tying the game into the centralized franchise. And then when Activision Blizzard reconfirmed Warzone Mobile's 2023 release late last year, they detailed that it was not going to impact Call of Duty Mobile that was developed and is owned by Timmy Studios, which is a subsidiary of Tencent. But in a response to the UK CMA regarding Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, um, they revealed that actually Call of Duty Mobile was expected to be phased out over time and that came a bit of a surprise to players because it was different to what Activision had informed them and of course uh, players were very disappointed I looked at the number of act- the active player base and again take this number with just a bit of a grain of salt and that's about 24 million players and a day or so after micro- sorry, Microsoft um, shared that information that was disclosed through the CMA Activision came out and said, oh, wait, no, we promise that we're actually going to keep committed to Call of Duty Mobile and keep giving you content and updates, which is essentially counter to what Microsoft has said. And so it seems like Activision is still able to call the publisher shots for the game. But I do wonder if the acquisition goes through, do you think that Microsoft might force Activision Blizzard to change its stance? I'm curious what you think. I mean, this also reminds me of the, the the rift between Blizzard and other Chinese developers, right? Like, could this be like another situation like that? Maybe. Um, I mean, my take is that it never really made sense for two of these games to be out there and competing for users and competing for monetization, um, especially when they have such similar modes. <laughs> and they would be, the, the focus really would be on the same type of player. And just that type of cannibalization doesn't make sense long term. And what I read, uh, at least for the what Microsoft was saying, is that uh, Call of Duty Mobile would 
I guess, gradually wind down. I don't know exactly what that would look like around the world, except for in China. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I don't know when Activision com- comes back and says, hey, we'll continue to support it. I don't even know if they're talking like broadly or just for a certain period of time or if they're just saying words and then it'll really just be in China, but they're not lying. Like, I don't know what the corporate dance really looks like here. But one data point I'll just throw out that, you know, maybe you could have a couple interpretations for it is that I think it was in October, according to data.ai, paid downloads for Call of Duty Mobile went to zero. They just stopped doing um, like more paid downloads. You could say that's a result of the UA environment being tough. And maybe it is. But you could also say that Maybe they knew <laughs> they they made a decision on how they would think about the future of the franchise. And if they're going to emphasize Warzone more in the future, does it make sense to be spending millions of dollars on UA for a game that's not even going to be their like flagship, at least how they see it anymore? I don't know the answer to that other, <laughs> other than to say, I just don't see how having both of these out there and competing with each other makes a lot of sense. I, I agree, especially when it benefits Activision, Activision Blizzard to bring the call, the mobile franchise into its centralized cross-platform because it's stickier, you're in the environment. But at the same time, yeah, they did say that they're going to keep updating it. So I'm curious to see what, what happens there. And on that data point as well, I went to look at the pre-registration for Warzone and that passed the 25 million mark and it's now on its way to 35 million. They had to add a new goal to add, give even more stuff to players that pre-register. So that's now crossed the active player base. Well, estimated numbers for Call of Duty Mobile. Yeah, I think overall... I'm interested to also understand if this is just more of that strategic move that you mentioned, Devin, about divesting from third-party studios and also centralizing everything Call of Duty under Activision Blizzard. Yeah, I actually have have a a bigger picture question that I'm curious Mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts on. Or maybe, David, you would even have have thoughts on this as kind of as an entrepreneur. Um, uh, It seems like there's like a pendulum that's been swinging with... Uh, like over the past few years, it's been like Western companies admitting in certain types of mobile genres that they don't have the expertise. And so they look to get co-development partners with these like Chinese companies that have proven experience. Uh, but as we've seen with EA and now Activision, through whatever reason, relationships being tense, the revenue shares not big, ideal, whatever it is, it seems like at least with those two companies the pendulum is swinging back the other way where they're saying, hey, let's take on the risk and uncertainty, develop internally, reap all the profits, not deal with co-development partnerships the same way. Um, Is that a trend that we're going to see across the industry or is it really just these two companies standing alone? I mean, I can share just sort of anecdotally uh, just things I've heard from developers who've been in these situations, I, I am, this is not something I've never done. Uh, code, we had Tencent as an investor in our last company, but um, we didn't, there was no code development sure. relationship there. Um, I've not heard great things about um, the reality of code development between Western and uh, Chinese companies. And I broadly, I think it comes down to um, significant cultural differences, unsurprisingly. Um, you know, also logistically, it's very hard to coordinate a- across 
you know, across time zones on development, you can, you know, it, and uh, I think, especially when the stakes are as high and the and the budgets are involved are as large, um, that just heightens the heightens the the risks and the challenges. And I, I I think we could see a bit of a pendulum swing back the other way for for, for these reasons. I see two two more reasons. I believe that when a lot of these partnerships started developing, it was at a time where there wasn't a lot of triple AAA, AAA mobile developers and studios that could execute on these kind of games, whilst China's always been ahead in terms of mobile game development. But now I believe that through those code dev opportunities and developing these higher quality games, the West now has that talent to deliver it on its own. I think additionally, there's just a change in the competitive market where we see now these Eastern companies trying to also take market share from the West. And I don't know if they want to centralize their operations and not have CoDev with a direct competitor that's trying to also take their market share. Begs the question of whether or not the quality is going to be the same though, right? Like, uh, you know, obviously Call of Duty Mobile did pretty well on the quality of it and the development, you know, was was obviously like, you know, up there. But can they replicate that? You know, when they go to do their own, will the game feel totally different and people be disappointed because they'll be like, this doesn't feel like Call of Duty Mobile? Because so game feel is pretty big for Call of Duty games. It's currently soft launched in Australia and there was also some leaks. And I think what players are saying is that it's the best it's the best thing that Call of Duty could have done. It's a great experience. The map that they prioritized, it's fun. And the cross-platform, it just makes it streamlined that you have one battle pass, you can carry everything over. But because it's on the same engine as um, Modern Warfare 2 and the new Warzone, it's meant to be great. I guess we'll see if they uh, if they push everyone over. Like, you know, we start seeing ads within Call of Duty Mobile pushing everyone over to Warzone and like purposely cannibalizing people over to try and sunset it or not. I guess that'll kind of give us an early indicator there probably. Mm, I wonder if the T's and C's with the partnership with Timmy Studios would allow that. I'm not sure. Be interesting to see. We've got some uh, some interesting deep dives here today, with especially something that's been on everyone's mind over the weekend and into this week and possibly even today, like a lot of stuff going on, which is uh, SVB or Silicon Valley Bank's big collapse along with other banks like Signature that went down over the weekend, but especially focused on what happened here with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. Okay. So a lot to cover. Uh, you've heard the expression, you know, may you live in interesting times. People uh, it, people have said it's a Chinese curse. It actually, was an American politician who made it up, is, is I actually think uh, where it came from. But anyway, uh, the reason I mentioned is I'm, I'm really happy to say that this topic is about 40% less interesting than when we first picked it for the podcast. And I'm really happy about that because the most interesting version of events would have been absolutely catastrophic. So it would have been a better podcast, but I'd be having a much worse week. Um, I should also declare, you know, uh, some, some interest in the, um, I did have uh, an account and some assets at SVB and, um, also have quite a number of, uh, friends, uh, other entrepreneurs who were affected. So, uh, this is the perspective from which I am coming at this discussion. Um, okay, so uh, some, some quick background. I'll give it an overview, and then we'll sort of dig into some of the more games industry-specific uh, aspects of this. Uh, so Silicon Valley Bank was a 
40-year-old bank set up in 1983. It was the 16th largest bank in the country before its collapse. Um, and it offered a range of services to companies, uh, including obviously checking and, um, and deposit services, but they had a number of other um, areas of business, wealth management, um, a, a bunch of different investment products, um, and, and also a, a very active um, uh, debt business uh, offering loans of various kinds, um, capital call lines of credits to VCs, as well as venture debt and, and, and things, things like this. Um, and its customer base... Obviously, very, very heavy presence in both venture capitalists as well as uh, Bay Area and not just Bay Area, actually global uh, tech companies, but also served a number of businesses in the Bay Area as well. They were um, also very, very present in uh, for a lot of climate companies. They were very large in the wine business, and there were many local Bay Area businesses that banked with with SVB as well as their as their local bank. So that's that's the kind of background on on on, on what Silicon Valley Bank actually was. Um, I think. What happened over the last couple of years, um, as we were, as we experienced the COVID boom times in technology, there was a huge, huge increase in the bank's deposits. So I believe that between the end of 2019 and the first quarter of 2022, the bank tripled its deposit balances to about 190 something billion dollars so really really huge influx of cash um, that was obviously a, a you know an, an, an outcome of all the money that was flowing in you know companies were raising money big VC funds were you know were, were raising big amounts of money and they were they were putting it with uh, with 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 SVB um, what that meant was they ended up with a very um, with a deposit base that was very heavily skewed towards these a relatively smaller number, if you compared them with an average bank, a relatively small number of very very large accounts, and you know that's relevant because the um, the limit, uh, the FDIC deposit limit on uh, what is insured by the by the federal government is just two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is you know a decent amount of a decent amount of money if you're talking about a personal checking account, but as soon as you're talking about businesses that have you know. 30, 50, 100, 1,000 employees, um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, of course, is, is, is not it's less than you need to meet a single payroll cycle. So, um, so far, so, so okay. Um, I think where things really started to go wrong was um, the, what they did with this money. And, you know, if, obviously, we remember this was a very low interest rate environment at the time. And so in, uh, and really the bank's business, you know, business models are, Take money and earn more in yield than you are paying out to depositors, and keep the difference. There's also lots of other ways they make money, but that's certainly one part of the business model. And so, uh, I think where things started to come undone was um, a pretty significant chunk of these deposits were put into long, very long dated securities. So, you know, these were these were long dated treasuries. Um, mortgage-backed securities. And of course, what happened in the last you know, six months or whatever it's been of this federal, you know, this rate hiking cycle that was, you know, among the most rapid interest rate increases, I think, that has ever been done in the US economy, more or less. Um, what happened was the value of these of these bonds was plummeting. And this was a problem for SVB, and they were really kind of actually doubly exposed to, to the increase in interest rates. Um, Partly because, as I said, they had in they had invested in all these long dated um, bonds that were no longer very attractive compared to the interest rates that people people could get today. 
But then they also had a depositor base that was very exposed to interest rate increases as well, right? So, you know, tech companies, everyone always talks about sort of tech companies being a zero, more of a zero interest rate phenomenon. People, people's appetite for risk goes up when assets are, you know, when, when interest rates are low. And so their, their depositor base really needed to actually start drawing down on their, um, on, on the money that they had. And so, what that meant was Silicon Valley Bank was essentially being forced to sell uh, these securities at a loss um, at, at a time when you know the va- the value was you know, was was pl- was was plummeting, and what kicked all of this off was. Um, as a result of this, they announced they were going to do a capital raise, which never got completed. They announced the capital raise on the same day that Silvergate Bank collapsed, which also not ideal uh, from a, a communications perspective, probably. And basically, this kicked off a bank run, which was, I think, and this is one of the, one of the things that I think was a bit specific to SVB and also specific to maybe what bank runs looked like in 2023, which is this happened at an unprecedented speed. So. You know, they had about uh, $40 billion in outflows in one day. It was Thursday, I believe it was. And I think this was a com- this was a combination of one, they had a, a customer base that was very, very highly concentrated in, you know, a, a, a couple of, of, of sectors. And also, um, these are very online, these are terminally, like all of us, terminally online people who would talk to each other all the time. And so the speed that this, ha- that this happened was... Just unprecedented. Anyway, that's the recap. Uh, that's what happened. What, what um, I think, what's interesting and what's sort of relevant, like why do we care about this um, as you know a podcast talking about games? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, so first of all, as I said at the outset, there were quite a number of particularly venture-backed game companies that were keeping their funds with SVB, and also a number of the VCs that game companies that raise money from also had their money there. And particularly as we approach uh, GDC, where a lot of uh, pitching is going to be going on, um, it's, it's worth asking what impact is this going to have on 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 the landscape. Um, but I think, but first, I want to just talk about the reaction to the bailout. So I should say the final kind of the the sort of happy ending to the story is the federal government stepped in here and announced that they were essentially going to guarantee the deposits of. The people who had money with SVB. I think it's really important to draw a distinction between what happened here and what happened in the uh, to some of the the GSIBs, the, the systemically the big the big banks during the the financial crisis. This was not a bailout of the bank's shareholders or bondholders. In fact, I think the the banks the banks basically the equity is going to be zeroed. This was them stepping in to say, hey, if you had money at SVB, even if it was much, much more than the $250 limit, we are going to make sure you have access to that money. And this, the, 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 reset, the, the reaction to this, to me, was maybe not surprising, but it was really disheartening. And, uh, and this is a, a reaction I saw both from uh, the various corners of the, of the media, but also actually from a number of games industry, you know, non-SVB uh, uh games industry CEOs. And the reaction was basically, this is a bailout of rich VCs and um, they shouldn't be helped. And, uh, and like this, and, and, for, and again, like I have a, I have a, I have a dog in this race. Uh, and, you know, and there were, there were CEOs, you know, there were game company CEOs who I, who I knew were having a pretty 
terrible weekends trying to figure out how the hell they were going to meet payroll. And I think it's, I'm going to declare my perspective and then maybe ask for maybe, you know, maybe some alternative, you know, some alternative perspectives from you guys. But here is, here's my, here's my, my, my take. If you're our game company CEO, you raise $5 million from a, from a VC and a VC says, Hey, you should use this bank because they understand your business. They're going to be able to, and I and I and I, and I speaking to someone who has banked with various places, and I uh, including large banks that have no understanding of what you do and trying to do things like get any kind of a loan for anything, and just being told no. <laughs> there were real. There were there were a lot of reasons why people had money uh, with this institution. And my belief is, if you put a bunch of money with your bank. It is a reasonable expectation as a game company CEO to say, you know what, I uh, I don't have to think too. I don't have to. I should not have to go and look at the bank's balance sheet and analyze its uh, it, its duration exposure or interest rate risk or uh, any of the other things that it's hard enough hard enough to focus on just building a company, building a startup, making analyzing the market, building a team, making games, and I think that. This idea that you were somehow irresponsible for putting your money with a 40-year-old bank and expecting it to be there on Monday. Um, I have no sympathy for the perspective that this was somehow irresponsible. You should have spread your money across 40 different banks. But I don't know. Maybe there are other, there are definitely other perspectives. So I'll, sh- I'll shut up for a second. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it is a wake-up call um, if you are... A CEO and you have a fiscal responsibility to a business to recognize that, hey, um, <laughs> maybe I, I should be paying a bit more attention here because reality isn't exactly as it seems. I, I actually agree with you on basically everything you said about how a lot of the, the reaction was disheartening. Like, I do think there there probably are some fair criticisms you could say of like <laughs> what some VCs are saying on Twitter or just like how yeah some people were taking advantage of the situation to try to you know spark new new pretty egregious terms to like loan out money to help companies throughout the crisis but in general yeah when things like this happen like you, most people should handle this with some level of empathy right um even if you can't directly help to at least be understanding <laughs> of, of those who are going I think, through the situation. I, I mean, you can probably draw some, some further distinctions here, right? Like I, you know, one of the companies that was caught up in this was, you know, apparently Roku had you know, $500 billion in cash with SVB. And, yeah. you know, you could argue that a publicly traded company that presumably has a very well-paid CFO and finance team should be expected to have a more sophisticated approach to treasury management such that they are managing their risk in a very, uh, you know, very active way. Um, but I sort of, that's that's a very different thing than you know a thirty person fifty person startup that let's face it like you're not an expert on what this this entire lands this entire landscape and I sort of wonder if, actually if maybe one solution is just a higher limit for businesses like a two hundred fifty thousand dollars does not go very far for a you know for 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 a business and maybe that's part of the solution I don't know yeah I think it, it probably should be I mean I think that. Um, it's, I agree. It's unrealistic that companies should be able to (laughs) like have to spend a lot of time reading the balance sheets of their banks to really understand what's going on. Also, because a lot of times just bank financials are super opaque. 
Um, and not so like, you know, get too in the weeds of like bake finances, which I'm sure all of our readers or listeners, you know, love hearing about. But like there are essentially loopholes in the system that like with Silicon Valley Bank, um, they didn't have to price their loans to the market. And so it made it look like their assets were larger than they actually were if they were being priced at like the current the current rates. Um, and so, yeah, it's and, just like, and again, like as, as, a, as a startup founder, do I, should I be expected to understand the distinction between the held to maturity and available for sale categorization of bank debt? Like maybe I should, I don't know. I mean, I do think we will see a proliferation of new products that are designed. If I'm already starting to see them that are designed to help address this risk, um, in terms of this treasury risk, um, so, you know, I, I can I can definitely see that that starting to change. The final, kind of the final thing I maybe want to leave leave this on is as far as how do we how do I you know do we see this having a a long term impact or anything on the on the fundraising environment? I I I don't think that there are um, massive long term implications here. I do think that. Um, as we talk, look at the the, fun, the near term slash medium term funding environment, like there's a dial. Uh, the way I think about invest, you know, the investing uh, landscape is there's there's an axis. There's the fear greed axis, right? And you're always somewhere along a, along a continuum. And uh, I think there's no question, even though crisis has been averted here, I do think this definitely moves us a couple of notches. Uh, towards the fear side of the continuum. And uh, that's not a, a great place to be if you, if, you, if you need to raise money right now. I got a, I got a question then. What, what do all these people do, especially the game studios, do now with that money now that they've taken it out, right? They just can't put it in their mattress. Yeah. They probably don't have time to do a whole bunch of due diligence on new banks, but they've got to put it somewhere, right? To pay payroll or whatever. W- what do they do now at this point? Yeah. Well, that that was part of the real really stressful last last week, where you have to go through the checks to open accounts, and that takes you know two days, three days, and you're trying to do that towards the end of the week to have somewhere to put your money. Yeah. What what I would say, where I was going to kind of connect the dots to saying like it's unreasonable for company leaders to like fully understand the financials of their bank, but it is more reasonable for them to start to risk manage a bit in terms of not putting all their eggs in one basket. And, um, you know, even with a company like Roku, like it had a lot of money in one bank, but that still was like a percentage of like a a smaller percentage of money it had all around. But, but even then, I mean, you could kind of be critical of that, but as a, as a leader, uh, like managing the cash of your company. Um, I mean, I think not having all your eggs in one basket is probably, a wise move now that you, the, now that we realize that the 250k <laughs> uh, marker is maybe it's it's low and you know the government stepped in this time but you never know um, in the future and you also never know like what that could look like with other governments around the world. The last thing I was just going to say is like there's money that you can have in banks, um, but even then I'm starting to see um, more like alternative kinds of options. So for example, um, Mercury is a financial. Um, platform. They're not a bank themselves, but they basically create the interface and connect you to banks. And they have what's called a sweep network, uh, which basically is instead of like if you work deposit your money through Mercury, it doesn't go into one account. It gets spread out across. I think now they have like twelve partners or something. And so their like their insured rate is three million, twelve times higher than the two hundred and fifty k. So it wouldn't surprise me if we start to see some 
like more solutions like that get thrown out and and something like that genuinely is probably like really good for startups to consider uh, where it's the same simple interface but behind the scenes the complexity is kind of taking share taking care of the insurance management the other thing I was just gonna say for larger companies is not everything needs to be held specifically in cash like you can have um, I mean look at like the the best companies in the world for managing their capital. Like if you look at a Berkshire Hathaway, you'll see that they have a lot of money in short-term treasuries too, uh, which is, you know, basically putting your money with the government um, and getting not awesome rates of return, but just like an alternative to to bank accounts. And you can spread it out in different and different different terms, different governments, different ways. Um, and so I don't know if all companies need to be thinking about that, but I do think there are alternatives versus just having all of your money and and one spot and then it's just up to the companies and however much money they have and what they're looking to do with their money to figure out how they want to spread it out across these um these different things so it's not perfect and i expect we'll see some regulatory change but there's still there still is some action leaders can take to to de-risk um but anyways i i did cut you off there maria so i don't know if you want to get back to the the point that you were making yeah i just wanted to add that with svb uk um, the limit is actually 85,000. That's guaranteed pounds. So much lower. And HSBC acquired um, the UK arm in order to bail the, the companies that had their money with them. But I think it might also be a cultural thing as trusting a bank with all of your eggs in one basket. You know, in Portugal, we don't trust the government. You know, we, we come from a position of distrust and you always want to control your finances because who knows if a bank might might collapse. And so one of my jobs when I first started in the fishing industry, I spent a year just managing multiple bank accounts and always making sure that all of that risk was was mitigated. And so maybe yeah, we'll going, I think we'll definitely see a change in wanting to protect your money, but it could also have been uh, just from a cultural perspective, not not having that as something first and foremost. It's also a situation where even even not having all of your eggs in one basket still could could impact. So, for example, like uh, Circle with USDC, it was just it was enough money in there to potentially depeg the whole thing and not have enough to back it and stuff like that. So it's like depending on the which, which money it is over there and and what they need it for. Like uh, you know, like the payroll situation was the big one for right for for empathy for these situations because that affects people downstream as well. Whereas it's like, what type of money is over here? Is it appropriate for here? When you spread your stuff out, do you have to have some stuff all in one chunk, for example? Because you're like, say, payroll probably can't, you can't distribute it across 50 banks very well, right? Like, so I imagine this is going to be like a complex situation to resolve, like even with new, better practices of like how to manage this stuff, right? Yeah, I hope, I hope governments come to look at this and try to modernize the system a bit. Um, at least in terms of how companies, how company accounts work, and also just how banks themselves manage yeah. risk. Too. Exactly. There's probably some work to be done there. We don't need to dig into the, the weeds of that. But yeah, for the sake of everyone, I think there's some work to be done on the system. Well, speaking of uh, divesting eggs different places, uh, we got uh, an interesting one here from Applovin spinning off Redemption uh, games and, and then fundraising. Yeah, what a transition there. Um, that was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> um, so last week it was announced that AppLovin spun off, spun out uh, Redemption Games and the spinoff on Redemption side. 
was also paired with a venture raise of $7 million. And I want to cover this briefly from both the Redemption and Applevin sides. Um, but let's start with Redemption, since I think it's it's simpler. Um, and for some brief background, Redemption Games was founded by Michael Witz and Dan Lynn in 2019. These guys originally were behind the hit Cookie Jam, but Redemption Games originally set out to build a game called Sweet Escapes, which is a, is a match-three bakery-themed game. Uh, which, according to VentureBeat, has amassed more than $60 million in revenue. And currently, the team is working on two new games. One is another puzzle game, but the other is a Web3 digital collectible game of sorts. And I don't know much about either, um, but I suspect the latter is maybe part of the reason why uh, Redemption sought to leave AppLovin, uh, which has been very free-to-play mobile-focused, and go independent again. And we can talk about the AppLovin side of things next but you know really before digging into like the the app loving side of the equation and all that's going on on there um david i i do want to hear your insights on the redemption side you're an advisor to redemption games and you led merit circles investment in them in this latest round um so i'm curious just what attracted you to this team and whatever it is they're building or if you have any color on just the spinoff as a whole yeah, thanks. Uh, well, you've, you've certainly declared again declared my my biases for me, so that's great. Um, <laughs> look, I think I, as someone who looked at you know talks to a lot of startups and looked at a lot of Web three deals, this is exactly the kind of team and company that you want to see um, entering the space um, because I think their approach is really is really interesting. So first of all, you have a team that shipped games before. Uh, which is which is obviously really really positive. Michael's a great entrepreneur. He's been he's been making games since the days of uh, the Facebook platform back in uh, 2000 and, 2009, 2008, 2009 period, and um, and the, the, and and specifically that team has been shipping games together for a significant amount of time. And I think that is a very very um, People don't talk about it as much, but I, it's you know there's a lot of focus. There's a sort of become almost like a cliche that in venture, like you have all these you know the classic thing to do, which which Mitch Lasky called kind of a lazy approach is you know you throw a bunch of money at a bunch of ex riot people like and and hope for the best. And I think that like a much better strategy is if you can find a team that's sort of getting the band back together essentially and they they've they've got that shorthand they've worked together they've shipped together before that's that's rare actually and and from my perspective um really really uh valuable i think the other thing that is that is really good to see is they have uh they're taking a little bit of a portfolio approach i'm noticing this with some of the stronger teams um in who are announcing web3 they're sort of they're a bit diversified from a sort of platform perspective so in the, you know in the case of redemption without going too much into detail about what they're doing they have one thing that's a little bit more traditional playing to the the what you know some of the stuff that they've done before and then they have a, a bet that's you know a little bit more out there and i think that is from a venture investor perspective a very attractive um sort of risk well it depends i guess it depends on your outlook as a venture some vcs just want you to go balls to the wall and you know pursue the riskiest possible thing and in, in the in the you know in the case of us so personally though i really like the fact that you have a team that's taking a bit of a diversified approach and uh combining you know more traditional approaches with more innovative ones and yeah i'm a big fan of michael and that team and uh i'm excited about what they're doing 
Awesome. Do you think there's some uh, parallels then with what happened with Jam City spinning out their Web3 game into Play Labs? Like that sort of idea of like, hey, we're an established mobile game company. We know what we're doing there, uh, but we want to do some more experimental stuff. Maybe we should spin this off. Yeah, I think it's a little. Di- I think it's a little different. Um, you know, in the case of Jam City, um, you know, when you've got this sort of scaled, somewhat at least semi-scaled mobile game company, um, I think there's a really. It's really. I've seen this happen a little bit. I don't know how much has been announced, but I've seen this happen a few times before. It's it's pretty hard. It makes sense to spin the more. Um, you know, the more sort of uh, venture. You think about this. If you were looking, if you're looking at them as investments, one is a very different stage investment than the other. So when you have a latest, you know, a larger company, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, it, it makes a lot of sense to have something in a separate entity that can be financed separately, be a separate thing, basically. Um, yeah, but do you think the the Web three aspect of redemption is part of what led it to leave AppLovin two? Or I really can't. Sp- I, I I really can't speculate or talk about any of the. Okay, no, that's cool. In fact, uh, actually, um, like, I don't even think that it that um, Michael even announced that they had spun out from App Love, and that was, a, I think, a detail. I, I mean, look, it's not rocket science if you if you looked at who owned it before, but um, I actually don't even think Michael and the team even announced that it was spinning out when they when they did. Okay. Um, interesting. Um, but yeah, the other side of the equation here is just app loving, <laughs> which I think is um, interesting to to chat through. Just like, what are they up to? What are they doing? Like, what is this? Um, what is this move? Maybe just like hint at like bigger picture how they're approaching their mobile games business. And um, if you recall, a couple of years ago, Applovin was one of the hottest new companies to IPO in the games industry, right? In part because of how the two sides of its business, the the app side, which was largely mobile games, and the ad tech software side, um, how those two complemented each other. And there were some concerns at the time about conflicts of interest around leveraging third-party data for internal games, but the business itself was clicking really well. But then ATT happened, uh, right? As has happened across the industry and affected many companies, and everything changed. And I won't rehash the full history there, but... The, the high-level results for this last quarter for AppLovin are informative, in my opinion. The ad tech software side of the business is up nicely, while the apps business revenue-wise is down nearly 30%. And earnings um, are also held way down, partially because of high stock-based comp, but also it looks like they did some like asset, asset write-offs too. Um, and if you look over the past few quarters, it's easy to get the sense that uh, from management that they are focusing their future much more on the, the software side. I don't think that's a secret. I think they've been pretty pretty transparent about that is where they are leaning. And that doesn't mean that they are completely winding down the app side. Um, although maybe if a buyer came to the portfolio, uh, came you know looking to, to buy everything, I'm sure they'd happily consider it. Um, but what it does mean is that the app's business is getting a lot of scrutiny internally. And that scrutiny has entailed layoffs, studio closures, um, completely rethinking the UA strategies, of course, restructuring of earnout arrangements, etc. And um, much of this has happened, but based on the redemption news, it, it seems pretty obvious that AppLovin will continue 
um, staying open to winding down certain operations or handing things over or just getting creative in its ways to kind of like hand hand things off in in the apps business elsewhere. Um, and so um, I'm curious what you all make <laughs> of app loving these days, but maybe at a high level and just kind of thinking about like the apps or the mobile game side of their business. Do you suspect that they'll continue to wind that down either in big ways or in small ways? Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious where you all maybe see see that business flowing there. I don't think it's a coincidence that two of the most re- high reputation companies of the industry that are data-led in how they try to create new games and iterate on new games are spinning off the studio or shutting down new games like Batika did. And I I assume that Uplevin might also be suffering in that regard with the ATT changes where, yeah, they were data-led in how, like, what markets do we target? What kind of games do we aim to quickly prototype and throw out there? Yep. And so it it might make more sense just follow into their strongest suit, which is the the software side. On Uplevin, I mean, if you look at those two businesses have very different characteristics, right? The sort of mediation ad network piece of the business and the uh, studio piece of the business. And it is pretty telling that on the one hand, you have a piece of the business that is uh, highly exposed to the changes in the privacy landscape. And I think if you talk to a lot of founders who are running mobile game studios, they will tell you how broken uh, the UA landscape is right now. Um, So, you have a piece of business that's highly exposed to that, and then you have a piece of the business that, if not, if I mean, I, I don't think it would be fair to say it benefits from, from 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 it in any way. But certainly, you're not taking that same level of risk. You're you're mar- you know you're taking a margin on activity, and you know they have a pretty strong position in on that on that side of the business. So it sort of makes sense that they would double down on that and dial down their exposure to. To, to the other piece just based on the characteristics of the of the two businesses, right? Yeah, I'm just curious what that that looks like. Um, and but, I mean, I think that'll mean that the scales will continue to tip more towards the software side, obviously. And we also know from a few months ago that when uh, the Unity Iron Source uh, merger was announced, AppLovin stepped in to try to, you know, you know, get Unity to say no to Iron Source Iron Source and join forces with them instead, and so I still think it is it is telling. Like even if they're trying to like rethink, wind down, optimize the app side of the business, there still is more work to be done on the software side to best position themselves competitively. Um, and obviously, the Unity deal didn't go through with them for better or worse. But um, yeah, maybe maybe just final question. If anyone has any thoughts on on the software ad tech side, like, um, like what do you make of the like that that landscape these days? Like, do you think we'll see more consolidation? Are there enough like big players left out there to continue to consolidate into to make to kind of rally around like these bigger companies that can help developers move the needle more? Or um, like, what realistically should we expect? from an app loving as they refocus on the ad tech side. These are businesses that benefit from scale, right? So if you're if you have the ability to be one of the scaled players, then you're you're in a stronger position than anyone else. So sure. Yes, I 
I think we're going to see, and we might already be seeing a change in the landscape where bigger gaming studios that own, you know, multiple um, subsidiaries have a portfolio of games that they'll make more investment in trying to pull their data and have a holistic uh, data source to make learnings that don't have as much limitation in terms of the transparency and the granular detail. But I also think we might see these software solutions become more specialized potentially in terms of the genre and what kind of platforms they can target players from. I know that there are already some networks that are ideal for if you're going to do a hyper casual game or if you're going to be doing a mid-core game, you want to go with more of your percentage of spend on another network. So again, this I'm not a very it's not a very informed opinion, but based on what I've been seeing, that could be a direction that is going through. And I think I remember that Uploven was already looking to restructure and separate their games business from their software business. So it could just be that they have that that appetite already exists to potentially accept some some spin-offs and let some of these studios go if they wish to do so. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's interesting too, just from the standpoint of when you're so reliant, on massive platforms to dictate the policies that affect an entire industry. Like how you think about your strategy and tactics around that, they can just change at a whim. And they have changed in, on a whim in the past. Obviously, like AppLovin was bringing together these two sides of the business together for a reason that overnight basically made that um, strategy fall apart and forced them to rethink. There's a chance, you know, three, five years from now that. Um, you know, once app store policies continue to change, new uh, best practices are found in UA or new platforms where that happens. That um, even like what we what they would come up with like a game plan for thinking about the future that that completely changes again, just in terms of how ad tech works and merging businesses together like this. Um, so yeah, I can't help just kind of shake the thought in the back of my head that <laughs> we just don't really know like the next five years of what makes sense because it's so dependent on big platforms and whatever they do. But um, yeah, it's an interesting interesting situation AppLovin has been and how kind of sad how 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 far they've they've fallen from the hype that they had a couple of years ago. Cool. Well, I want to thank all the panelists, of course, uh, familiar faces here that I'll, I'm sure will be back uh, for joining today. Had some good topics and I look forward to seeing all the rest of you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.